Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am here with my co-host, Karen Henson, also known as Curriculum Karen. You know, that nickname's never going to die, is it? It's totally not going to die, nor should it. (laughs) I feel like I want a cooler nickname. Mm. I demand it. No, that one's pretty awesome. You're going to keep it. All right. If you have a cooler nickname, you can email us at (laughs) equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Actually, that is interesting. Y'all totally should do that. That that would be an interesting contest. Somebody name, rename Karen. Rename Curriculum Karen. You can't actually rename me as a human. Well, I mean, you can. There's an extent. Yeah. We've crossed a line. Okay. What are we doing today? I have no idea. Yeah, we're going to continue our conversation with Jerry Root on evangelism. So, y'all enjoy this episode. We're back this week for part two of this three-part series on evangelism with Dr. Jerry Root. So, Dr. Root, welcome back, man. We're glad you're here. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. It excites me to think that we could be engaging in things together now that could have eternal results if people Mm -hmm. apply what we're saying and have the opportunity to usher others into the kingdom. Yeah, no doubt. I think there's only two things we can do that can last forever. Have kids and lead people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. So those are important endeavors. Real kids and spiritual kids. Yeah, it is about people. (laughs) Why don't we start by just talking about some practicalities? A lot of times when people think about evangelism, especially in the early years of as as they're getting trained in it or they begin to practice it in their own lives, one of the things that I see is people get married to a certain methodology and it's almost like if they break away from that methodology, then they like have no idea what to do. It's Heck. like, uh, <laughs> there's four spiritual laws, but this is not working on you. And so I don't really know what to do. And, and one of my mantras around here anyway is, is like, because it can, it can get really weird for people. And which I think if you listen to the last week's podcast, we talked about just uh, some of the complexities of motivators that motivate us. And when people feel that awkwardness in the exchange, that can create a lot of fear um, or shame or just embarrassment that they have to deal with. And so when, when you think about the methodology of evangelism, how do you think about it? Well, let me, let me say a couple of things about this first, real real quick. I'm the director of the Evangelism Initiative at Wheaton College. The executive director of the Billy Graham Center is Ed Stetzer, who's a genius at, 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 at thinking through evangelistic issues, equipping the church to do these sorts of things. Nice. But in the Evangelism Initiative, what we're trying to do is create on our campus an ethos an ethos of a passion for evangelism that our students, when they graduate, will go and plant Christ's flag wherever they go. If they're a medical doctor in the medical field, if they're a teacher among their teachers, if they're a custodian while they're working in their custodial work as they get to know the people in the building where they're working and so on. Everybody has a mission. Everybody has a missional opportunity. Create the ethos. And we're trying to take it to other campuses across the nation, too, that these Christian colleges would be deliberate about preparing their students to go out and be missional wherever they go. So now we talk about method. It's not a method. It's it's a mission. Mm-hmm. And I want to connect with whoever I meet. And each circumstance is different. And like you had observed, if I have just one way of doing this and the circumstances don't work out quite according to my way, I'm going to be lost. So it, it's it's transmission of the love of God and the forgiveness of God to others, and, and the circumstances can vary. Now, 
Paul, Paul was in prison. He said, my circumstances have turned out to the greater progress of the gospel. I, 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 he's in prison and he's got his head on a swivel and he's looking for the opportunities in these very constricted circumstances. But he saw that there was a Praetorian guard that was in there with them and he starts sharing Christ with the Praetorian guard. At the end of the book of Philippians, he says, the saints in Caesar's household mm -hmm. greet you. Mm -hmm. He had his fingers on the pulse of the Roman Empire by virtue of just being aware of the opportunities around him, limited as they might have been. And and the other thing, too, is uh, I, I, I've met people before. This actually happened twice to me where I had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you got to pray for me, man. I'm the only Christian in my place of work, and I am miserable. In both cases, I put my hand on the shoulder of these men, and I said, Lord, look at my brother here, how miserable he is being the only Christian in his place of work. Please remove him from this earth and take him home to heaven right now. <laughs> And in both cases, they knocked my hand off their shoulder and said, what are you praying? I said, there's two ways you can look at your circumstances. Either be miserable like you tend to be or recognize that you're strategically placed. Mm -hmm, what an opportunity. And start praying for God to work in you and through you since he put you in that environment. And I remember even when I was younger, um, a new Christian. I was going to this college and there was an electrician at my college and he, he was, um, he went to my church. So when I would see him at the college, very secular college, I'd see him at the college and it was like an oasis on the campus at that time. But he had always talked to me about these jerks that he worked with and how they were worldly and how they did this and how they did that. And he didn't like them and all that sort of thing. And one day he got mad at him. They were badgering him and he went to throw a punch at one of them. Well, that ended his employment. And I thought to myself, that's just not the way to share the gospel. <laughs> and I learned from that as a brand new Christian. And that first summer as a Christian, I was working pipeline construction, replacing gas pipe in LA, working with a jackhammer all summer. And, and I get on this construction crew and these guys find out I'm a Christian. And they were on me like flies to stink. And they started making fun of me. And they started needling me. And in and, and, and some cases, very obnoxious. But they were drawing humor at my expense. And I remembered that guy at school. And I just thought to myself, don't respond like him. So I just ramped it up and worked harder. I stayed there and never responded to their 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 badgering. Mm -hmm. except to laugh when it was funny, because sometimes what they said was funny, even if it was at my expense. Yeah, right. And what happened is two weeks of working hard and not getting upset, I was one of them. Mm -hmm. I was their brother, and we were on the same crew. And I had opportunity after opportunity to share Christ with them because I was strategically placed as the only guy on that work crew. I shared the gospel with every guy I work with. I, I don't know the end result of that one. Except to know this, I learned not to be afraid even in those tough circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I learned it from watching a guy who, who didn't respond well and learned from that. Now, as far as method is concerned, Paul's in prison. His circumstances are limited. But he writes to the church at Philippi, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he says also, because I'm in prison and still sharing, by virtue of my example, more people are bold to share the gospel. Mm -hmm. Some aren't doing it for the best of motives. Some are doing it from really good motives. All I say is, if Christ is preached, I rejoice. And, and I don't think he's a connoisseur of method. 
I think he's just happy people are telling other people about Jesus. Yeah. I think we can always grow. We can always improve. We can become more sensitive, more clear, um, and so on. But I, I don't think the option is to opt out. So there's a couple of uh, uh, evangelistic methods I don't like, frankly. But I've seen people use them very effectively. And so that gives me pause to ever be such a connoisseur of sharing my faith that, that I, I, I would neglect that people can use this well. It's comfortable. It's helpful for them. But my own sense is I've got a message and there's a context immediately before me. Mm. And I want to be sensitive to that context. How can I work that? How can I somehow be sensitive to that person and bring the gospel to play in that particular instance? That's so helpful. And I can just... I I hear our type A listeners on the other end of this uh, podcast and they're going, no, I wanted to write down a formula. I wanted step one. I wanted step two. I wanted step three. I was hoping that's what you were going to give to me. Yeah. How do I close the deal? Yeah. Like like I wanted A plus B equals C. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, wait, Paul doesn't use a method. Excuse me. And so what I hear you saying is that, hey, we got to be able to read a couple things. We got to read the situation that's before us, understand what we're walking into or who we're talking to. And then remember, there's a person in front of you, a real live human person that we get to engage with. And that's important. I mean, I think back on my my own time and um, my previous job, I was actually a nurse. And so the way that I would share the gospel with my coworkers looked pretty drastically different than I would with a patient because they were in really different places in their lives. Normally, patients were uh, in a crisis moment. And so that looked different than trying to engage with my coworkers who felt like maybe they had everything together or uh, life was going well for them or everything was smooth. And so we just have to remember what situation are you in and who is standing in front of you? That's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you look at Jesus sharing the gospel, you know, he, he, he sometimes does it with a complete stranger, like the woman at the well, like the man at the pool of Bethesda and so on. Other times he does it with people he knows fairly well. And other times he, he, he does it in a crowd, and sometimes he does it individually. It's all different. Same thing with Paul. He could be at the Agora, the marketplace in Athens. He could be before the intellectuals on Mars Hill at Athens. He could be at the school of Tyrannus where there's a big crowd, and he's discipling and mentoring and deploying and so on. So that sensitivity to place, I think, is important, but also a sensitivity that God has brought you to that place. You can be convinced in an understanding of the gospel message itself, God loves you, we're sinful, God forgives you, and you can individually receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Those, that, that message connected with that particular place and time is, I think, very important. And it's fun. It's fun. Every place you're at matters. Yeah, I think one of the things that people have to get past, and I'm hearing, I'm hearing you talk about this in different terms. I think one of the barriers that a lot of times I run into is, is that the understanding of the gospel message is sometimes, sometimes we reduce it down to you're bad and God's good. And like last week we talked about going to see the shaggy dog, you know, you thought you're going to go to hell. <laughs> I mean, it's like a, it, 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 the gospel can sometimes be perceived by people as this uh, or reduced down to, Hey, this is the thing that keeps you out of hell. And so it feels very transactional 
like, um, okay, I'm bad. God can somehow keep me out of hell. Okay, I'll do that, you know? And I think that's where a lot of times this, sometimes people doing evangelism can almost feel like a used car salesman where they're, they're just trying to pitch it. And so, but I'm hearing you talk about evangelism, like it's an invitation into a certain kind of life about an, how it's a movement into the life and the love of God. Um, how it's a, like, this is, these are categorically like different things. So talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I don't, I don't want to minimize the fact that there are fences in faith. There are some things God says, don't, don't do this. Uh, this won't be to your good. G.K. Chesterton talks about positive joy exists on condition. In some senses, there are some do-nots. There are some fences. But if you look at the fence well, you see that we put our nose up against the fence and pine over what we can't get to in the distance. Usually ignorant of the fact that those things and going outside the fence in that direction are going to be to our peril. God doesn't put up the fences because he's a killjoy. He puts up the fences, one, because he wants to protect us from that which would harm us. And two, he wants us to turn our back to the fence, not push our nose into the fence. Turn your back to the fence and see the playground that's defined by the fence. And, and that playground is a playground where we can know infinite joy. We can know the love of God. We can know the security of what it is to be loved and forgiven. But nevertheless, C.S. Lewis said, you do have to awaken in a person a sense of sin. Because what are they being saved from? What are they being forgiven of? And and I think then we have to be thoughtful about how we awaken a sense of sin. And I don't think we do it by usually pointing the other persons out. I usually will talk about the fact that we're pretty goofy. I'll say to a person, you know, you know what? As I look at life, I think anybody who lives it honestly knows they're messed up. I believe in the high ideal of love, but sometimes I've had sharp words with the people I say I love the most. And oftentimes a person will respond to that and say, you know what, I, I, I see that too in my life. Now we're getting someplace. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about our own struggle and we can get to that particular place. I'll, I'll, I'll develop that a little bit further um, in, in a moment. But I remember one time sharing this. I'll use the word goofy. You know, I could say to a person, you know, I, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. Goofy people who know they're goofy and messed up and goofy people who don't know they're goofy mm-hmm. and messed up. Mm-hmm. And the second class are dangerous because mm-hmm. they live their life of pretense rather than honesty and so on. Well, I was saying this one time and this one man says, if you don't use the word sin, you have not preached the gospel. You better use the word sin. He was reading me the riot act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I looked at him because I kind of, I, I hear some arrogance in this, you know. Mm. And I looked at him and I said, well, why would you use the word sin? It's not a biblical term. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean it's not a biblical term? I said, well, frankly, in the Greek New Testament, the, the term is hamartia. That's the Greek word for sin. That's the biblical term. And our word for sin is a translation of that. And the whole doctrine of sin in theology is called homardiology, picking up on that. So there's the biblical word. And he goes, yeah, but if I use that word, nobody would understand me. And I go, exactly. Mm. I want the person to understand what this sin is all about. Mm. And, and, and every definition in Scripture is man playing God of his own life. Yeah. The Greek word homartia was an archer term. I knock the arrow, I take the arrow out of my um, 
quiver, I knock it in the bow, shoot at the target. If I miss the mark, it's a hamartia. And so Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and what's the mark we fell short of? And have fallen short of the glory of God. We tried to play God of our own life. The result of our sin are the sins that we commit, which are the resulting mismanagement of our life, trying to play God. We're, we're not capable of taking his place in our life. Mm. Now, sin is lawlessness, it says in First John. It's not, namos is the Greek word for law. It's not against God's law, antinomian. It's anamos, without God's law. It's totally anarchistic. We're mm. going to be God of our own life. And anarchists, not only estranges, anarchism not only estranges us from God, who is Lord, but estranges us from one another. And Anarchists make bad community people. And then also, you've got Satan trying to, trying to get Adam and Eve to fall, and he says, in the day you eat of the street, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The whole temptation to try and think that we can make it on our own, and, and that speculation about life is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. I, I get these people say, I don't need that, I'm going to be independent. And I say, really? So how's your farm going? They go, what do you mean, farm? I say, you say you're utterly independent, but my guess is you probably go to the grocery store and buy your groceries there. You haven't farmed them. You're totally dependent upon a culture that gets products to the grocery store to make your life easy. Mm -hmm. You're not saddling up your horse and driving. You're putting gas in your gas car. Where'd the gas come from? Mm -hmm. Our whole life is lived in dependence upon all kinds of other people. And, and why is it then when we come to the place where we recognize our spiritual resources are so deficient, we need something that transcends our own individuality, that brings us into community with God ultimately and with one another, and, and to break free of some of this nonsense that we believe. So I do think it's good to awaken sense of sin so that all of a sudden this issue of forgiveness becomes so precious because we know we have this need for it. We know we have to have the resources for God to teach us because we've been so incompetent and, and, and so unlife skilled in managing our own lives that we, we, we become cultivate humility, cultivate honesty. Honesty is often a synonym for humility mm-hmm. and, and, and start to live life the way God intended. Yeah. So a lot of times in our apologetic ministry here at Watermark, we'll have people come in and as I'm presenting the gospel uh, to these people, which we always do, we always pre- give a short, like four or five minute uh, gospel presentation at the beginning of uh, that session. And uh, I hardly ever use the word sin because it's so uh, loaded with things that I want to try to avoid that uh, a lot of times I'll use the word broken or wounded or dysfunctional or something like that. And all, I, I can't remember one time where people didn't connect with th- those words because everybody realizes like, oh yeah, there are areas of my life that are broken or are not functioning the way that they're supposed to. And so just connecting with people and using the language that people are going to understand so that you're accurately portraying the meaning of the, of the biblical text is 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 really crucial. I think this is absolutely right. I don't think there's anything wrong with the word sin. Right. And I think the people that use the English word to translate the Greek, they were using something that they understood that could be helpful. But it's like you just said, we need to make sure the person we're talking to understands what we mean. Mm. And and there there is a rebellion in us. There is a, a 
a, a, an arrogance, there's a pride, mm-hmm. and so on. And we need to own that that's there, and we need to own the consequences of what happens because we're running our life our own way. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the key is to make sure we communicate that idea. If a person has all kinds of prejudices about the word because they've misunderstood it or because it's been explained to them in a way that's inaccurate with the biblical teaching, then we need to make sure that we get the clarity there. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I think that the concept is more important than the specificity of oh, the yeah. exact word exact moment so on. yeah there's enough barriers already as there is mm-hmm. like spiritual depravity is enough of a barrier when the reality is like let's not continue to use words that people don't even understand yeah. or that are offensive on their own when the gospel is offensive enough yeah there's ways there's ways to trim the fat and and communicate clearly uh, without bringing in all of the baggage yeah that doesn't belong there sure so i think Sure. Another question I would ask you, Jerry, as far as the practicalities of all this. So I'm getting a little bit more practical here. So let's say someone goes up and, or they meet somebody on an airplane or they encounter someone at a restaurant or their waiter or whatever, and begin to start a conversation about Christ. And they soon realize that the person they're engaging with is hostile to Christianity um, how do we resist or how do we think about that situation? How do we engage that person in a way that doesn't compromise the gospel, but also retains a respectful dialogue that can move the conversation forward? Well, well you, you have to discern what's actually going on there. And I'm not convinced that every case where a person's hostile will be exactly the same cause. You know, the, the, mm. some people may be hostile because they were burned by somebody who claimed to be a Christian. If that's the case, then stand as a surrogate and ask that person for forgiveness. Because, again, you wouldn't want anything to keep them from seeing how much they're loved by God. It may be that another person is hostile towards Christianity because they're living a life that is not compatible with Christianity. Maybe they're living a promiscuous life and so on. And they don't want anything to do with Jesus because they don't want anything that's restricting their promiscuous life. Well, you, you could ask them, well, tell me about that life that you're living, if they're willing to let their guard down. Are you finding that that's, that's working for you? Are you finding fulfillment? And, and in the midst of living a promiscuous life, did you, did you ever uh, meet somebody in a bar and maybe have sex with that person? And, and then you bolted only to find out later that really messed that other person up. When, when, when I deny the humanity and the aspirations and hopes of another person because I want to get something from them, then something in me dies because I've denied their humanity. Something of my humanity dies at that moment. Is that working for you to take advantage, to live that promiscuous life? Or you say it's all consensual. Is it really consensual? Can you say there's never been a person hurt that you've taken advantage of? So that could be something. It could be something where a person's so saturated by the culture. It's not that they're trying to hurt other people. And it's not that somebody's necessarily hurt them. But they're blinders of culture. In our culture, for example, we we hardly in this secular culture have a place where there could be public discussion about faith apart from church or among Christians. So the secular person, they're living their life as if this stuff doesn't exist. But when Augustine said in the Confessions, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. 
I think that in fact people's hearts are restless, but where do they talk about the restlessness? Where do they talk about the spiritual impulse? And I'm amazed how often if we engage people in spiritual conversations, they, they begin to respond. It's never been easier for me to talk to people about spiritual things than now. I mean, some people, they're not interested, so you move on to the next one. I always, when I go out to share Christ in contact evangelism, I say, Lord, I know there are people out there that want to know because your son said that the fields are white unto harvest. He said there just weren't enough people that are willing to go. Well, I'm willing to go, and I'm here. Please lead me to the ones you've already prepared and, and, and to go and talk with them. The other thing, too, is let's say you're engaging in this conversation on a plane or whatever. How do you begin the conversation in the first place? You, you mentioned you wanted something real practical. I think we can ask public questions. Uh, what's your name? It's a public question. If we meet a person, um, uh, are you from this place where we're meeting them? I, I, I was in Chicago one time. I met this guy, and I said, what's your name? He said, Peter. I said, Peter, are you from Chicago? That's a public question. He's in Chicago. It's not intrusive. We listen to the answer, and in the answer, you get permission to go deeper. And the deeper you go with each of the answers that you get, you can often find that that person could take you to where the deep felt need is. So with Peter, I said, Peter, are you from Chicago? He said, no, I grew up in Albuquerque, but when my parents got divorced when I was 12, I moved to Chicago with my mother. He didn't have to tell me all that. He's probably been saying that to people for years because he's still probably trying to work out this brokenness and sadness of this fracturing of his family when he was young. Now, he didn't even have to say that. He could have just said, um, I, I moved to Chicago when I, I grew up in Albuquerque and moved to Chicago when I was 12. That would have been enough to go on. Do you remember where you were at when you were 12 years old? On the threshold of adolescence, that most purgatorial period of human development? <laughs> and he would have... He would have been removed from all of his close friends and the people that were his, his, his support structure and to move to an environment where he didn't know anybody. And I could have asked him about that. How hard was that? And so on. There was information where I'd bring my own humanity to play in the midst of his discussion and I know where to go deeper. But he said his folks were divorced and he moved with his mother. And I said, that sounds still pretty raw to you. Tell me about that. And in time, just asking public questions in response to each of his answers where he gave me more information to ask about. I eventually got to the place where he had pretty much gotten over the fact that his father never sent him a Christmas card or a birthday card and just abandoned him. He, he was dealing with the bitterness that was growing inside of him and his concern to somehow um, get rid of the bitterness because he didn't want to grow up a bitter old man. Mm. He needed to learn about forgiveness. Mm. And when it came time to share the gospel, I knew exactly where to connect that part of the gospel that would be most meaningful to him in that particular moment. And another time, I was uh, coming back from giving some C.S. Lewis lectures in Bratislava, uh, Slovakia, and the people that had me there dropped me off at the Vienna airport, which is only about a 45-minute drive from Bratislava. I get to the uh, check-in, and, and I go through passport control, and I get to the gate, and I'm there uh, and find out that the flight's been delayed about three hours, and I'm reading a book, and all of a sudden this young woman comes walking into the gate area, and she's got a lanyard and a name tag and a clipboard, and I see her going up, asking people questions and moving on. She's speaking German. Vienna is a German-speaking city, and I assume she's doing a survey for the airport. Sure enough, she comes up to me, and, and, and I say to her, 
Uh, she tells me she's doing a survey for the airport, and I say, what's your name? Public question. Allegra, she says. I said, Allegra, are you from Vienna? She said, no, I'm from southern Austria. So now the follow-up question could be, what brought you to Vienna? Mm-hmm. So she said she was a student. Now there's a lot of follow-up questions. Where do you go to school? What are you studying? And that conversation went on for a while. Then I said, do you have any other relatives in southern Austria? Only my father, she said, and he's a bitter man. She didn't have to tell me that. Mm-hmm. What's he bitter about, Allegra? She said, well, because my mother left with her lover to go to Canada. And she had a good reason to leave him. He's such a toxic person. And so we talked about that and the wounds that she had picked up from the toxicity of her father. And whatever wounds were given to him by the generation that preceded him. I asked her if she had other family. And she said a brother who who was also a student at the University of Vienna. and, and, And she said, but we don't get along very well either. And she says, and it's worse than that. So she's giving me the information. I get to ask the questions. I said, why is it worse than that, Allegra? She said, my boyfriend went to study art in Florence, said he'd be back in six months, asked me to wait dutifully for him, and I did. And he came home yesterday to tell me he met somebody better in in Florence. Mm. And I said, wow, this is so sad. This is a woman who longs to be loved, feels estranged in all of her social environments. And I know she needs to hear about the love of God. So finally, after 20 minutes, I know her life. She hasn't asked me a question mm-hmm. in the survey. And I said, Allegra, I've been sent. You need to ans- ask me your questions for the survey, but I've been sent here to tell you something. Then she thought I was a plant at the airport to see if she was doing her job. <laughs> I said, no, it was nothing about that. <laughs> awesome. Nothing about that. But I have been sent to tell you something. Mm-hmm. She says, all of us have been sent to tell people about something so important. So she goes through a survey, how long it take me to get checked in, how long it take me to get the passport control, all the things you'd expect she'd ask. And then she says, what were you sent here to tell me? I said, Allegra, the God of the universe knows you and he loves you. Mm-hmm. Allegra, he loves you. Sometimes you have to say it a third time for it to get through. Allegra, while humans have abandoned you and you feel estranged from so many, he will not abandon you. Allegra, he loves you. At that moment, she just burst into loud sobs. Everybody in that gate area is looking at me as if I'm torturing this poor woman. And it ended up, it ended up that, that um, she says to me through her tears, but I've done so many bad things with my life. And right there, the, the, the seed is, the, the soil is plowed for the seed. And I say, but Allegra, that's why he has forgiven you of all of that. Jesus loves you so much. That's why he died on the cross for your sins and rose again to forgive you of all of that. And, and, and to connect the gospel at the place of deep felt need. Mm-hmm. And, and it begins by just asking public questions, listening, and going deeper and deeper till you get to the place. And I, and I think in these conversations I've had with so many people, you can also come to the place in where you say, once you've explained the gospel, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to see how many people say, no, there, there's, there's no reason I wouldn't want to trust him. I just, a, a week and a half ago, had a guy to Christ just asking that question at the end of sharing the gospel. It's a lot of fun. That's just so helpful. And I, I bet it, if you asked 
those people that you shared stories about, what the most shocking thing was, what the most striking thing about what you did. It's not that you shared the gospel, but it's that you actually listened and that you actually heard their answers. We live in a culture today where people are so busy and they're rushing and they never pause and they don't actually care about your answer, right? Mm. Hey, how are you today? Fine. How are you? Good. And that's the entire conversation. But when you actually stop to listen, you take in their answers and you respond to it. That is so helpful. Yeah. Or these Christian subcultures that uh, can easily view evangelism as like a as a conquest. As yeah, like, like you have an people, agenda. View people as something to be conquered. Yes. Uh, like put another notch in in my spiritual belt right. or whatever, so I can gain more rewards in heaven or something like that. And yet we're we're getting from you know we're getting from you, Jerry, this fundamental recognition of the value and worth of an individual made in the image of God, mm-hmm. who is. Uh, precious to God and is uh, worth listening to, engaging with. Is therefore precious to you. Think about that very thing for a minute, though. And and Anytime you have a conversation, you can have, we, we live in a world where we don't have conversations. We have monologues going on in the same space. Mm. We have story topping. We have uh, uh, all, all kinds of other things. But the asking of questions not only draws another person out, it dignifies that person because their story matters. Yeah, that's good. And so let's say, let's say I meet a person and I just start talking to them and I, I ask them their name, public question, listen to the answer, go deeper, and then maybe something distracts us and we have to go our own ways. We never get to the gospel, but I am learning the art of communicating to people that they matter. Mm-hmm. Their story matters. Okay. And oftentimes I'm just practicing that And when the door opens where all of a sudden it does get to the depths where I'm able to share the gospel, it's just becoming a cultivated part of my life to talk to people and engage with people as if they matter. Mm -hmm. When you think that God's omniscient and all-knowing, and he just gave us one thin little book, the Bible, Widener Library at Harvard has 19 million volumes under that one roof. There's not a T crossed or an I dotted that's unknown to God. But still, he just gives us one book. You think from omniscience, just this one thin book, I shouldn't worry about it much because I'm not good at obeying what's in the one thin book that I need more. But nevertheless, in that book, that one book, there is a place where where you're reading through and you come to First Chronicles, and there's 12 chapters of names. And I remember coming to it in my Bible reading one time, and I I was praying, I said, Lord, listen, you didn't give us much in this book. But when I come to this 12 chapters of names, was that really good economical use of the space? (laughs) Couldn't you you and your omniscience given me some more? And at that moment, it dawned on me. No. To me, they were just names. To him, everyone was a person he was intimately acquainted with Mm -hmm. and knew well. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you could have known, Sarah, when she struggled with her barrenness and how hard it was for her. Oh, if you could have known Simeon, I know he was... He was horrible to his little brother, Joseph, but he was the one that felt unloved by his father, Jacob. He had a story, too, and his story mattered. And I read those 12 chapters, and I think to myself, God loves people. Mm. He loves individuals. I think he he put those 12 chapters of names in there, and he's, in a sense, saying through those chapters of names, Oh, if you could have known this one. Mm. Oh, if you could have known that one. Yeah. Oh, this one mattered so deeply to me. 
And there's something that pulsates through even the genealogies that reminds me people matter. I need to learn to cultivate that as I share the gospel. And my guess is there will come some authenticity, some transparency, some tenderness. This person matters. And I think sometimes we can gain a hearing there and let them know that they matter to God mm-hmm. and, and that Jesus loves them and forgives them and so on. It's, it's all cool, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like Lewis said, he, he said, you've never met a mere mortal. But when you understand the reality and the, and the shocking nature of the fact that we're made in the image of God, um, all of us are. And when I meditate on it and let it sit on me long enough, then it really... Um, the the weight of it gets heavier and heavier of the fact that like, man, every single person I interact with, including the homeless guy I talked to going into the gym this morning, whose life seemed like, you know, is in total shambles, um, that that man is cherished and, and loved and is uh, deeply valuable um, in God's eyes. That's a, it's a game changer when you begin to see people uh, more and more the way that God does. You're right. It's super cool. (laughs) It's all good. Thanks for joining us for part two of three with Jerry Root. If you liked it, subscribe, share it with your friends. And if you have any questions, email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Hope you join us next week. Bye. Peace.